Good morning and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Arch Hunter, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program we explore in depth the American experience from the beginning to the present. And today we want to welcome back as our very special guest, Lindsay Randall. Lindsay, thank you for coming back to the show this week. Thank you for having me back. Uh, Lindsay, if listeners remember, she was talking about the Battle of Pea Ridge and General Earl Van Dorn, and we got only so far into the battle, so she was kind enough to come back and do a couple more programs for us. So, Lindsay, if you would give a little bit of your background for our listeners again, then we'll get right back to where you left off with the Battle of Pea Ridge. Absolutely. So I went to college here in Arkansas, the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. I got my bachelor's degree and master's degree. I graduated with honors and did a honors thesis on the Battle of Pea Ridge and the leadership of Major General Van Dorn. Well, Lindsay, there's a lot more to you than that. How about <laughs> your family, your dog, your car? Okay. <laughs> well, I've been married to my husband, Mark, for 15 years. We have a son named Camden, and we have uh, the most precious, beautiful black Labrador retriever named Teddy Bonesavelt that's probably ever lived. And your car's name is? I have a car, and her name is Betty White, because I hope she lasts as many miles as Betty White has. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. I love that. And listeners, <laughs> you, you need to know that Lindsay has more energy in herself than I have seen in 20 people put together. She's <laughs> nonstop, nonstop energy. That's so, true. Yes. so, Lindsay, again, before we start, would you share with the listeners again, why did you do your master's thesis in a rather unknown Confederate general in a smaller battle at the beginning of the war? Absolutely. So I have lived in Northwest Arkansas since I was a teenager, and there were a lot of valuable primary resources available when it was time to do research for my honors thesis. Uh, initially, I was interested in researching Antietam, but we don't have a lot of primary sources about Antietam in Northwest Arkansas to easily access. And we did about Pea Ridge. And as I began to research the battle, I was just really interested in, in who Van Dorn was as a person. He's a really interesting historical character. So that really is what drove my desire to research more about him. And Lindy, how large is your school district? How many teachers are in your school district? Oh, oh goodness. Um, the whole school district? I'm, I'm so, not sure. Our high school, the, we have over 200 teachers just at the high school where I teach. Wow. So I, I, over 1,000. Over 1,000. It's a large district. Listeners, I'm asking Lindsay that because she didn't say it. She's modest that she was awarded Teacher of the Year last year in her school district. So congratulations, Lindsay, on that. So over a thousand teachers and, and you were awarded that award. That, that's a great thing. So congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm sure all those great courses that you've taken in the summer at the Freedoms Foundation has done much to inspire you to be the teacher of excellence that you are today. <laughs> you know, they, they did actually mention that when they named me as the, the Chamber of Commerce Teacher of the Year. They mentioned that I go on these trips in the summers. So, Arch, I, I think really you are the one who probably deserves the award. Oh, I don't think so. I, if, <laughs> listeners, if I get an award dealing with Lindsay, it's a word of patience. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if you want, if you want to uh, give a little bit of background or where you left off last week, and then pick right back up, Lindsay, so you can continue on with the battle and then teaching us about the general. Absolutely. So we had left off where Van Dorn's army was struggling on the first day of battle. He had divided his troops into two parts, and the three leaders of that side of the army had either been killed or captured in quick succession. And by early afternoon, half of the rebel army is idle, 
waiting for orders that never came. And so that's really where we left off. Around three o'clock in the afternoon, Van Dorn finally received word of the deaths of McCulloch and McIntosh and Louis Hebert. Although we know now he wasn't killed, he was just captured. Van Dorn was told he was killed. At the time that he gets this information, around three, he had been holding back the main line of the army, waiting for McCulloch to bring his troops up the Ford Road to connect. And General Sterling Price's Missouri State Guard had been fighting really hard at the Elkhorn Tavern, trying to dislodge federal troops under the command of of Colonel Eugene Carr for several hours. And so when Van Dorn gets this information that McCulloch and McIntosh and Hebert are not active any longer, he goes ahead and launches his main line in support of Price's Missouri State Guard. What he doesn't do is make any attempt whatsoever to notify the person who's now in command of his of his troops over to the west, Albert Pike. He makes no attempt to notify Pike of what the battle plans are. And Pike didn't know. He wasn't a part of those discussions. Nor does he attempt to go take personal control of his right wing. He fights there at Elkhorn Tavern. Pike is um, struggling. He, he has his troops climb up into trees in the woods to see if they can see federal movements, but they just end up sitting for hours waiting to see what to do next. Meanwhile, there at Elkhorn Tavern, Van Dorn and Price use successive waves of Confederate troops to push the Federals back to a place called Ruddix Field, which is a stubbled cornfield about half a mile away from Elkhorn Tavern. And the rebels are going to try and push them further, but cars, forces, kind of mountain intense artillery bombardment there, and they're able to hold the rebel forces back. So by nightfall, the rebel forces move back to the Elkhorn Tavern, and that's kind of where the battle ends for the day. Um, Van Dorn feels like they've won. He is feeling pretty elated into the evening that they've won. He does finally send word for Pike to join him into the evening. But Pike, at this point, they've left the battlefield. They have gone in search of water because his troops have now had empty canteens for a couple of days. They're thirsty. And remember, it's very cold. A lot of the water that is available is frozen. I also want to mention here, kind of an interesting piece of information is that Albert Pike, his core part of his troops that he was leading, they were Cherokee Mounted Rifles. This is one of the first, uh, in fact, it may be the first major Civil War engagement where there are a significant number of Native Americans who are involved in their Cherokee Mounted Rifles. And they are, he, in his official uh, correspondence after the war, his report of the battle, he says he has a really hard time with them. They're not following his orders. They are not willing to go out onto the open fields outside of the woods. And so he's really struggling to get them to do what he wants them to do, according to his words. They've gone in search of water. Van Dornson's word, hey, Pike, bring your troops and the rest of McCulloch's over to Elkhorn Tavern. And they have to then turn back around and march back to the battlefield. They don't make it to Van Dorn at Elkhorn Tavern until well after dark. Uh, so at the yes. Is that cold temperature characteristic of that time of year in Arkansas was or was it very unusually cold for that time of year? So now it's unusually cold. I mean, we will have pretty severe winter weather, usually in February, but typically by March, we're not expecting a lot of ice and snow. So it was a particularly bad storm. I don't want to say we never get that kind of weather in Arkansas, Northwest Arkansas that time of year, but it wasn't something that they were prepared for. So troops on, on both sides of the fight 
the Union and the Confederacy, they sleep on the fields without fire that night. Many of the Union troops felt for sure that they were losing. In fact, some of Curtis's higher command officers advocate for withdrawal. They think they should pull off of the field. But as one author wrote, really, the Union lines were bent but not broken. Mm -hmm. And Curtis is, is smart enough to realize that during the night, most of the demoralized, exhausted survivors of McCulloch's Confederate shattered division reach Elkhorn Tavern, and they're all just exhausted. They just fall onto the field, you know, to sleep. But Curtis has his men uh, actively moving. He does a couple of really, really smart things throughout the early morning hours. He's going to bring all of his, he's going to shift all of his troops into a compact formation instead of he was really spread out, right, because Van Dorn gets to Pea Ridge, he's not expecting him to, to hit his flanks. So they're kind of spread out. He brings them into a compact formation. All soldiers under Curtis that night are fed. All regiments and batteries are resupplied with ammunition. He also has federal troops under Colonel Jefferson C. Davis and General Fran Segal move in to reinforce Carr in the left flank in kind of a perpendicular shaped move. And then he he does something really really that's going to turn the tide of the second day. He has Seagal bring up 21 artillery pieces and line them up wheel well to wheel well, facing the Confederate lines. On the other side, right, Van Doren at night makes another critical error. And we've seen several, right, the division of his forces not communicating plans, but this one is pretty bad as far as they go. He neglects to order the ordnance and supply trains from Camp Stevens, which is about 10 or 11 miles away. He neglects to order them up. And remember, we talked about the, the first, um, when we first started talking about this, that he didn't have any aides that he had put in charge of those things. Right, he right. was just handling it all himself. And so he doesn't call for those things to come. So in the morning of March 8th, when the Confederates wake up, they have dry canteens, they have empty stomachs, they're missing supplies, they're very critically low on ammunition, and they're facing 21 federal cannon across the field that's, that have taken this high ground called Wellesley's Knoll facing them. And yeah. it's, it's, do you, do you yeah. in your research, do you think that it is because of Van Dorn is in over his head or is it incompetence that he makes so many? I mean, that to me and you probably it sounds it's a very, you know, normal thing that to call up your supply wagon, supply, bring up your supplies. Uh -huh. And he doesn't even do that. So what do you believe is going on with him that we see in him as a general at that point? Absolutely. I think a couple of things are, are key here. One, remember, he's sick. He got sick when he fell into that little Red River. And so mm -hmm. I think he's not thinking, I don't think he's thinking on, on his game. Uh, but secondly, he, where he's really shown ex excellent skills is in cavalry work. And so that's quick movements, traveling with few supplies. And so that's, that's how his mind thinks. We're going to talk about that again when we get to his actions mm -hmm. in Second Corinth. And the third thing is, I think he's just promoted beyond his abilities. I think that he's not a major general, you know, type material. He needs to be in charge of cavalry forces, but okay. not an entire army, would be my opinion. Okay. So the Confederates wake up, you know, Van Dorn does try to make a show early on. He sees all these federal cannon. He does have several of his own artillery batteries. Remember, the Confederates went into this battle with a significant superiority in firepower. So he does start out trying to to kind of dislodge the federal cannon, but then the, the federals are going to open up round after round after round, two hours of continuous firing. Okay. Um, and historians today say that it was about 30 shots a minute, mm. about 3,600 rounds. Oh. And to that point in the war, it was the most intense artillery bombardment. But, oh. of course, this is before, like, Gettysburg and Petersburg mm. and, and those that were Vicksburg. 
but it's significant. Many of the Confederates were taking shelter in the woods and in front of a, an area called Big Mountain. And they're out in the promontory of Big Mountain, there are 30-foot-high sandstone cliffs, columns, that you can kind of get between their crevices. And a lot of the Confederates had taken refuge and shelter in those. And it becomes known uh, colloquially, they're locally, it's called slaughter in the rocks. Because huh. when the shot shell hit those sandstone columns, it creates a deadly amount of shrapnel. And as Fran Segel, when he writes about it later, he says the rock did as much work as the shot and shell oh, that morning geez. did. And so it's just, it's a crushing assault. Um, the rebels are, are pushed back continuously from the field at 10 a.m. after being informed that the ammunition wagons are still five to six hours away. Van Dorn orders a withdrawal from the field. Van Dorn and Price ride away east on a road called the Huntsville Road, while many of his men are still engaged. And in fact, he forgets to send a message to Albert Pike that they're withdrawing from the field. At the same time, General Curtis sends orders for the infantry to advance. And this is one of the really neat parts of this battle. Uh, the artillery ceases. There are about 10,000 Union soldiers that are ordered to dress ranks. And so they straighten into lines, stretching over a mile. It's one of the rare occasions in the Civil War when an entire army, the infantry, the artillery, the cavalry, are all visible in a line of battle from flank mm -hmm. to flank. And um, one Union soldier from Indiana said it was the grandest sight I ever saw. They begin to advance, and the rebel forces scatter in all directions. It is a very disorganized retreat. And that's, that's the end of the battle, and it is just a crushing Defeat. I just want to remind the listeners that this is the largest Confederate force ever assembled west of the Mississippi River. They are defeated by a numerically and logistically inferior force of, of federal troops 200 miles away from their supply base. Mm. And it's just my thesis was that that can only be explained, that type of loss could only be explained really as a failure of command. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I still probably stand by that um, now. Well, what with this defeat at Pea Ridge of the rebel army, what is the bottom line for Arkansas? I mean, when mm -hmm. when this battle's over, what does that look like for Arkansas now at early on in the war? Well, and that's a great question. It, it looks bleak for the Confederate cause in Arkansas. In fact, Van Dorn, shortly after the battle, right, he marches his troops south about 80 miles to Van Buren. What's left of Price's and McCulloch's troops, he marches them south to Van Buren, Arkansas. And there he gets word from G.T. Beauregard, I need you to come over to Mississippi right now. They were concentrating all Confederate armies west of the Appalachians to defeat Grant at Pittsburgh Landing Tennessee, mm -hmm. on the Tennessee River. And so he calls them over. And Van Dorn takes all of the troops. He takes all of the weapons. He takes all of the horses. And when the next guy who's put in, and I can't remember his name, but the next guy who's put in charge of Arkansas, when he gets there, he goes to Little Rock to the Confederate fort there, and there's nothing. Everything's been taken. And so it's going to be really hard for the Confederates in Arkansas to try and hold it. Curtis is going to stay in Arkansas. He's going to move from west to east until he gets Helena, and he's going to take Helena, which is going to be a, a jumping off point for the Vicksburg campaign. There is there going to be a couple of small skirmishes still. There's another one in December 1862 called the Battle of Prairie Grove that's not going to be successful for the Confederates. But for the most part, this is the end of Arkansas's Confederate ah. sway. So does the majority of Arkansas then become under a Union control for the remainder of the war or was there continuing fighting throughout Arkansas? Yeah. So uh, most of the Union forces are going to mass over on the Mississippi River near the Memphis, Helena, West Helena area. 
there are going to be probably some there are going to be some smaller skirmishes. The Battle of Prairie Grove is, is somewhat significant in December 1862, but after December 1862, there aren't really any major armies on the western side of the state. Most of what's going to happen in the state is going to be over along the Mississippi River uh, because of that. You know, as we get into 1863, that Vicksburg campaign that's going to be the bigger thing. And what what about Van Dorn from here on out after this debacle? Absolutely. So he's really never trusted by the men under his command again. And I do want to make a quick note of the casualties. Interestingly enough, so if, if you've ever, if any of your listeners or if you've ever been in the official records of the War of the Rebellion, you can read through all of these battle reports. And the federal casualties at Pea Ridge where we have a really specific number, 1,384, because Curtis takes um, time to really write it down. There are 203 killed, including 12 of his officers. It's about 13% of the people he took into battle are casualties. On the Confederate side, we don't have a specific number. It's about 2,000 with no specific list. But here's what I can tell you. Three Brigadier Generals were killed at the Battle of Pea Ridge, McCulloch and McIntosh, and then another one that we didn't talk about, William Slack was mortally wounded at Elkhorn Tavern. He was shot in the left hip and he died within weeks of that. So that's three Brigadier Generals. And when you look at like lists of Confederate leaders killed in battles, Pea Ridge ranks up high, comparing it to places like Antietam and and Petersburg and Franklin. And uh, Franklin and Gettysburg were worse, but the number of Brigadier Generals killed, that's that's pretty substantial to have three killed. So that's going to cut out a lot of his experienced officers are either going to be critically injured or they're going to be killed. He gets over to, well, he makes it to the Battle of Shiloh after it's already underway. Some historians believe if he had gotten there sooner, Now, he doesn't get there. There's a lot of rains. His troops are moving slow. If he had gotten there sooner and been able to reinforce Albert Sidney Johnston's forces, that that battle might have gone differently. But, you know, we we don't know. Thank you, Lindy. With this tremendous, so many mistakes that Van Dorn made at Pea Ridge, why is he left in command of troops at all? You know, I have wondered that myself. (laughs) You know, some of it, you remember a, a few things to know, and there's... I was listening to a podcast not too long ago where they were talking about how there was this belief by some leaders that your West Point education kind of trumped other people who didn't have that education but maybe had more experience. I think that plays a role that he was an educated person, that he was the the great nephew of Andrew Jackson, that he was a personal friend of Jefferson Davis, all of those things probably played a role. And he's really um, flamboyant, you know, he's, he's, he kind of puts himself out there and, and he's hard to contend with. I do know that he's not going to hold command for much longer. And I can kind of go into that with you here. He has a couple of things that he's going to do. He's going to be at the April to May 1862 siege of Corinth, right? This is the crossroads of the Confederacy, mm-hmm. this junction of these four big railroads. He's there with GT Beauregard and that's going to be a federal win. After the siege of Corinth, he has sent next down to Vicksburg under assignment to command the Department of Mississippi, Alabama, and Eastern Louisiana, and is cited for his successful defense of Vicksburg in July 1862 against the Federal Fleet of Farragut. He comes up with this plan to use CSS Arkansas to ram some of the ships and kind of holds them off and pushes them back down toward New Orleans. And so he gets some attention for that. After Vicksburg, he's put in charge of all cavalry forces in Mississippi. 
and he's replaced it at Vicksburg by Pemberton, who you mentioned um, <laughs> when we did another one of these shows. We're not going to bring his name up. Okay, we're not going to bring his name up. It's still a sore point with us Philadelphians that this John Pemberton jumped ship on us and 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 was a general in the Confederate Army. <laughs> Absolutely. So after that, he he. This is where he's going to have probably one of the bigger embarrassments of of his life. If Peerage isn't bad enough, right? He's going to go into the Second Corinth battle. Van Dorn and Price are reunified with orders to keep the forces of Don Carlos Buell and William Rose Grant apart. He announces an immediate and direct attack before Federals could concentrate, right? He's got these three armies that are coming together. He believes that swiftness and surprise are going to be critical. And we're just walking down the same road we did at Pea Ridge. Mm -hmm. He's not going to order reconnaissance. He says, we're not going to travel with these heavy wagons. We're going to um, use captured supplies to make sure that we've got enough to eat. And this is really pushed back against by Price. He said, this is, this is a terrible idea. We shouldn't do this. Another piece of this, and this is a big critical mistake, he opts not to await the arrival of 12 to 15,000 recently released Confederate prisoners who had been taken prisoner at Fort Donaldson and Island Number 10 near New Madrid, Missouri. They've just been released, 12 to 15,000 of them. And they could, if they waited just a, a few weeks, right, they could come in and reinforce his force. As it is, he's got an equal force to uh, Rosecrans. But he says, no, no, we need to surprise them. We're not going to wait for these guys. And so the the, the battle happens, and uh, Corinth is a, a Confederate loss, a significant one. And he's court-martialed for it. And the list of charges is pretty long. He is charged with failing to reconnoiter, with having insufficient supplies, marching in haste in a disordered manner, uh, failing to act on intelligence that the Union was being reinforced, and cruelty for forcing his men to march and countermarch repeatedly over the same wow. areas uh, with blistered feet and hunger because this particular battle is happening in September and October. And, and for your listeners, maybe who aren't from the South, those are hot months, especially the beginning of October, right? Sweat timber and hot tober. They're very hot. And so a lot of his men are facing heat exhaustion. So we're in Pea Ridge, they're freezing. They don't have anything to keep them warm here at Second Corinth they're dying of heat exhaustion. And so he is, um, he's court martial. There are also rumors that he was intoxicated during the battle. Um, and those were probably not true, but that's another rumor that's being spread about him. He's found not guilty. There's not enough evidence to support those charges, but he loses his command. Now, I remember when I was researching this in college and I thought, when it said that he was not guilty because of lack of evidence, I thought, how much evidence do you need <laughs> yes, yeah. that someone is inept at command, right? So I don't know like, with the background of that, like how is it that he's able to get out of that court-martial with a not guilty, but he is. And he still doesn't accept responsibility. He writes a letter after his court-martial, in my zeal for my country, I have ventured too far with inadequate means, and I bow to the opinion of the people whom I serve. Really, he's admitting here that his only fault is his patriotic zeal. That's it. I'm just so patriotic. I didn't think. And it, that sounds very much like George McClellan in the East. Uh -huh. so, so, Absolutely. You know, we're almost up against time, Lindy, for this segment. But if you could read what happens to Van Dorn from, very broadly for the rest of the war. Absolutely. He has a couple of bright spots. He is going to probably his brightest spot is he plans 
handpicks the men for and leads an all cavalry raid at Holly Springs, Mississippi, which is Grant's most important supply spot. And he's able to destroy almost $2 million worth of federal supplies, which is going to force Grant to move back toward Memphis. And then he's also going to have significant success with Bedford Forest at Thompson Station, where they're going to have a success in March of 1863. But then May 7th, 1863, Major General Earl Van Dorn's uh, life ends. He is murdered at his headquarters in Spring Hill, Tennessee, by a man named Dr. George Peters, who was in his probably late 50s, because Van Dorn was... I'm going to interrupt you right there. I'm so sorry, because that's going to lead us into the next program. Oh, okay. Stop right there. We're up against time. So listeners, continue listening, because Lindsay's going to tell us about the end of life of General Van Dorn and his personal life in our next program. So, Lindsay, thank you for sharing again and bringing us up to date on the, the rest of the Battle of Pea Ridge and filling in those details for us. We certainly appreciate it. And thank you again for coming and sharing today. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So this is WFYL 1180 AM, Working for Your Liberty. Thank you.